So we've been talking the last few weeks about our vision as a church and our mission as we're working towards and, and planning to plant this new church for the praise of our God's name. And so with our talks about the vision, which is to bring God's renewal to Bill County and the world, that's where we're headed. The direction is to spread His Renewal and our mission describes how we're going to get there, describes our purpose. So this church will exist so that people will be made new in Jesus, grow in Jesus, and be released into the world for Jesus. So this describes our vision and our mission. But the question still remains on, well, well, that's great and lofty goals, but how are you going to do it? So we're talking tonight and the next few weeks on our mission and our vision in action. So we're talking about our strategy and specifically a gospel-centered strategy. So when you hear the word strategy, I'm not sure what comes to your mind, but what the word means is a plan of action. So it's describing how you're going to accomplish your overall aim or your purpose. And so if you don't have a strategy, then you may have an idea, in our case, uh, a mission. But if you don't have a strategy, then you haven't really laid out, well, how are we going to accomplish said mission? And so a strategy is just to plan, describes the how we're going to do it. So we're going to be gospel-centered. So everything that we do as a church is focused upon the gospel. Now, just so that we're clear, this phrase, gospel-centered, has become kind of like a hot-button, really popular buzzword in Christianity. So just so that we're clear on what we're talking about, when I said that we're gospel-centered, what I'm talking about is we're, we're focused upon Jesus. I mean, to be gospel-centered is to be Jesus-centered. And so all that we do as a church, and we'll talk about this more, by the way, in a few weeks we'll talk about our values. One is the gospel and so we'll go into more depth on that specifically, being gospel-centered. But here, what we're talking about is the finished work of Jesus. So the gospel is the message that through the life and the, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, He is rescuing people from all tribes and nations and tongues, rescuing them from what? From the wrath of God so that we can have the peace of God for the praise of His name. So the gospel is the message of salvation that Jesus accomplishes for us. And so all that we do as a church, so if you're new and kind of checking out this church plan, is we're going to be focused upon the gospel of Jesus. So everything that we do will be gospel-centered on hearing the gospel, believing it, and then living in light of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The gospel transforms us, and it's what brings us into the presence of God. And so Jesus, through His work on the cross, and this message of reconciliation, is how we can be brought near. So Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so now we can be brought near and enjoy the presence of God, because of what Jesus has done, and the gospel is the message. And it's not a sad message, it's a good news message. And I look at some churches, not saying ours, but man, there's just no joy. And it's like, well, have you heard the gospel? The gospel is good news, and it should, it should make our hearts leap 
for joy that there's forgiveness and there's hope and there's purpose and that we can know God. And so we should respond to this with lives of worship. We're talking about our strategy tonight and the next three weeks. And it's all going to flow from Acts chapter 2. So as we think about this gospel-centeredness and our strategy, let's just read that. Because the next four weeks will essentially be rooted on what you see in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, which is... Some's called the early church, or some's called the Acts church, but this is just what you see. It was foundational when the church was first born at Pentecost. Soon after, you see this in Acts 2. So verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Powerful text. And we'll be looking at that more the next few weeks as well. But there are four components to the Renewal Church strategy. Again, gospel centrality. So we have worship. And you see that right here. So worship is the fuel for and the end of the mission. You see it says that all came upon every soul. And so we'll talk more tonight, but this sense of being awe and awe is the essence of worship. And so, and so you see that here. It says that they were meeting in the temple. So they had large gatherings that were formal, that there was proclamation and there was singing. And then they also met in homes, kind of like we're going to do. We're going to meet on Sundays and have the church gather together and then meet in homes in our home groups where we go in and share our lives together which is it says that they were all together and it said they had fellowship. Well, what is that? That is community, which is the next point of our, of our strategy. So which is the context for the mission. So the mission is not accomplished individually. It's accomplished in community. And you see that it says they had all things in common. They were sharing possessions. They were sharing food. They, they were just sharing their lives together. And so we're trying as a church now to capture that is taking meals to those that need it and and sharing and taking gift cards to those who just had a baby. And so we're trying to live this out, sharing our lives, gathering together, and then meeting in homes. And so community, we'll talk about that more next week, which is a context for the mission. And then the next thing is growth. Growth, spiritual growth is the result of the mission. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so, who wrote the New Testament? Anyone know? Any guesses? The apostles. The apostles wrote the New Testament. Who do you think Matthew was? One of the apostles. Who, I mean, this is, who was John? One of the apostles. Now, you do have Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, and he wasn't an apostle that was with Jesus initially, but he was called by Jesus and was an apostle. And so, every single New Testament book has what's called apostolic authority, written by either an apostle or a close associate, like Mark. Not an apostle, 
but an associate of Paul, who was an apostle. So every book has apostolic authority. And so it was written by someone inspired by the Spirit of God. So when you see here that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to the Bible. They were studying the Word. And so they were growing spiritually. We'll look at that in two weeks. And then it says, And the Lord adds to the number day by day those who were being saved. And so they were they had gospel-centered influence, and this is living on mission. And we'll look at that in three weeks as we wrap up our Sunday evening trainings together on the 18th of November. So these four points of the Renewal Church strategy are, are not like my idea. Like, I didn't invent this strategy. I'm not that smart, and I'm not that foolish. I'm not going to lead a church to have strategy. That's my creativity. I'm not that creative. This is rooted in the Bible. So I'm reading Acts 2 and saying, what is God revealing? And this is what He's revealing. And so I'm saying, okay, so that's how we should do it as a church. And so we're just trying to follow what God has revealed as His strategy to accomplish His mission. Let's talk about the first one tonight. For our time we have remaining, we're talking about worship. So the, the, first, the first component, the first if you will, element of the Renewal Church strategy so gospel-centered worship. Now, this is just crazy because this morning, Pastor Andy preached on what? On worship. Now, I'm not copying him for the record because I gave you guys your binders weeks ago and I had already I had the whole schedule mapped out. And so this morning I was like, are you kidding me? This is so cool. So, But, but I have more time tonight than he does in the morning, so we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, but same theme. So let's start off with the word Worship. Now, our English word worship comes from an old English word called worth-ship. So that's, it's evolved over the years to worship, but it refers to worth. And so the word worship refers to recognizing worth or value. And so worship is worthing, so finding worth in God. So it refers to having value or or treasuring, you can use that word, or or prizing is another word that you can use. And so really treasuring, prizing, valuing God in your heart. So that is that is what worship is. And so it's so worship, I think of it this way, is an inner response. So worship is always a response. And never worship is never a beginning point. Worship is always a response to God. And so our worship is a response to God's worth. That's what it is. And so I want to read to you from Matthew 15. This is the words of Jesus. And he talks about worship. Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. Just to be clear, he's talking to Pharisees and scribes, so religious leaders. Talking to church people, okay? He's not talking to the pagans. He's talking to people that supposedly know God and supposedly worship God and they have all of the external realities. They have all of the churchianity down. They have they know all the right answers. Raised in Sunday school. They, they, they know all the right answers. All right, they're church. And here's what he says, verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, these are teachers. 
They're teaching the Word. They should know about worship and on their lips and in their behavior. They have all the appearance of worship, but He says, but their heart is far from Me. And so therefore, He says, it's vain. It's zero. It's non-worship. It's vain worship. He's saying it's not worship at all. And so the appearance, the external religiosity that people sometimes ascribe to, oh, I'm worshiping. Jesus says, if if your heart isn't in it, it's not worship. So worship comes from the heart. Now, can you fake it? Of course you can. I mean, you can raise your hands in a worship service, and you can fake it, you can pretend, make everyone think that you're worshiping, but it's not actually worshiping. So valuing God's infinite worth, it's not worship, unless in your heart you love Jesus. And as we saw in Acts 2, being in awe of Him. And worship has the connotations and the meaning of of bowing down before Him. And so this is what worship is. It's the response to who God is, and then you respond with valuing and treasuring Him, and that is worship. Because you see, God has exactly one purpose in everything that He does. Everything in creation And everything in redemption and saving people for Himself, everything God does has exactly one purpose. So He created us and then has saved us for the sake of His glory. He's doing it for the praise of His name. So the display of God's glory is why He does what He does. How many of you have ever gone somewhere outdoors, maybe in a mountain or... Maybe the great, the Grand Canyon that was just amazing to you. Anyone? Maybe a beach where it's like early morning and you see the sunrise. Ever been in awe of that? Or been like in a mountainside or in a valley or, or just been outdoors and you're just like, like you're in awe, like you're stunned? That is by God's design. He's designed it so that you would respond with this awe that's stirring in your heart. Guess what that is? worship, valuing God. When was the last time that you ate something that tasted really good? And I don't mean junk food. I'm not talking about junk food. Like tasted something that just, you tasted and you were like, oh, this is just so good. Ever had that experience? Ever? A few of you? Yeah? I like it. Guess why God made food taste good? So that when you would taste it and taste how awesome it tastes, you would respond with, oh, This is so good. Because God made it. He thought of it. He gave us taste buds. And they made food taste awesome for a reason. So you would respond with worship. The list can go on. But everything that God did in creation is so that we would acknowledge Him and respond with this awe. And and in our redemption, He is saving us from our sin. So that We can respond with worship, with glorifying Him. Even being made in God's image. Have you thought about that for a moment? Just think. He made you reflecting Him. He made you in His image. Why would God do that? So that you can then mirror Him, reflect Him, reflect His character. And as you do that, you are displaying His glory, which is your purpose for Existing. So God created 
for the praise of His name. Now this might sound a little bit egotistical. This might sound kind of self-centered. You might think, man, God sounds like an egomaniac. Like all God cares about is everyone and just praise and praise me. I need your praise. And like if you meet a person that always wants to be praised, you think, man, that guy or, or that girl, man, they're, they're really self-centered. And people might think that way about God. And like, man, all God cares about is just to praise a people. And as though somehow that is evil or ungodly. But see, here's why that's not true. Like God is not an egomaniac. Because here's the reality about our design to display His glory. Is when we display His glory, you know what that does to us? It gives us joy. It's like when we talk about, oh, he or she is using me. When you use that phrase, is that a positive or negative thing? Negative, right? You say, oh, he just wants to use me or use her for her body or just, or whatever, right? And so we have these, and rightfully so, if you're using someone, then that's for your own selfish gain. Make sense? Like you're, you're exploiting or you're using them. And so we have, we are repulsed by that and we should be. But we oftentimes say God is using us and we don't get repulsed by that. You know why? Because when God uses you, it's for your blessing. God's not using you to exploit you. God doesn't use you to take anything from you. When God uses you, He is giving you value. He's giving you joy. Because He's not taking it from you. He's giving you. He's giving you joy and, he, and He's giving you purpose. So it's the same thing when we talk about worshiping God. When we praise Him, it gives us joy. Because He is the source of happiness. He is the source of of joy. Only God can satisfy our souls. God created us for Him. So the most loving thing that God could do, hear me, the most loving and kind and generous and giving thing that God can do is ask you to praise Him. Ask you to worship Him. Because in your worshiping Him, it results in you having because there's no joy that's lasting anywhere else. Where are you going to go to find lasting joy? Anything that you would turn to that's not God is created. It's an idol. It won't satisfy you. So God is saying, come and enjoy the fountain of living water. Come and eat the bread of life. You're never going to be hungry. Come and have purpose and joy. Come live. And he's offering the best, which is what? Himself. He gives us himself. He's not shorting us anything. He's offering us true and lasting joy. Why Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. So when God says, praise me, when God says, Worship me. He says, give me your life, your affections, your loyalty. Treasure me. Let me use you. What he's saying is, let me fill you with 
your way and not have you settle for anything short of what's best. So he's offering us what's available for lasting joy, which is his own presence. So the question is, how does God lead us to worship him? So if we begin to understand that God's offering himself, which is the, the fountain of joy and living water and eternal life, if he's offering us that, well, how, what does God do to get our hearts to respond to him with worship? You know what he does? He reveals himself. He tells us who He is. He reveals His character. And when He shows us who He is, and we see that with the eyes of faith, then we respond with worship. Because God is revealing His heart through the Word. So how many of you here have ever received a love note? Now if you're married, I hope you're going to say yes. Anyone here have gotten a love note? No, oh, very few of you. I'm so sorry. That's so, that's so terrible. I wish all of you, I wish all of you had raised your hands because, because you're missing out. I remember whenever I was in college living here in Belton, actually UMHB, a long time ago. And I spent a summer in the hill country in Marble Falls in the, in the, in the, in the Christian camp. I was there all summer. Now at the time I was dating Bonnie. I wanted to marry her. I would a year later. And I loved her. I love everything about her heart. I just, I love what she looked like too. But I love her heart. I love who she was. I'm not going to lie. Like, I liked everything about her. But I loved her and I enjoyed her. And then it was just like torture to be away from her all summer. Like, it felt like so, it was like 10 weeks. It felt like so long. And this was back in the late 90s. And so there was, there were no smartphones. And, you know, we wrote letters, believe it or not. Like, it's dating me, I know. But we actually wrote, like, hand-wrote letters. And I'll never forget, every, like, two or three days, it was just awesome. I would get a letter, like, in the actual mail, like, snail mail, there at camp. And there was no internet, it was just at a camp. And I would, I would get this letter, and I would go, like, literally run to my bunk. Like, I was like a little boy, I get it. But So I would, like, run to my bunk, and I would open the letter, and, and I would just read it. And guess what? I didn't read it once. I read it over and over and I would just reread it and just enjoy it. Why? Because the penmanship was just amazing, right? Because, the, because the paper quality was just astounding, right? No! Why did I read it and just enjoy it so much? Because it was an extension of my girl. This person that I loved and it was it was a message from her to me, and by reading it, I was, I was enjoying the relationship that I have with her. And so she was disclosing herself. She was revealing her heart and her love for me. And it gripped my heart. It was so powerful. And what God does is very similar. He's revealing who He is. He's revealing His heart to you. He's revealing how much He loves you, even though you're a rebel. So am I. Even though we run from Him. And He's offering life and joy and fullness in His presence. And we run to idols. We do it every day. Don't deny it. You know you do. We all do. And yet He loves you. 
and he pursued you and then he purchased your freedom with his own blood on the cross and the more that we begin to know the heart of God his holiness his mercy it grips us and we're stunned and we bow down and our hearts respond with worship with adoration with love with affections they're stirred when we see him when he's revealed and so worship is our response to God's revelation God reveals who he is we read it here and just like me reading those love notes over and over we we read this and our hearts are stirred and that stirring that response is worship so we see God's character we see his glory with our hearts with our eyes of faith and then the heart responds with praise we respond with with devotion with the desire to obey because we find worth we find value in him and we see more value in him than anything that he created there's more value in him than what he does and so guys this is a sidebar this one is free Alright, so you value your wives, right? The answer is yes. And those that aren't married yet, one day when you're married, then you can value your wife. But you ought to value her more than what she does for you. Amen, sisters? You should value her for her more than you value her cooking. You should value her more than the clean underwear. You should value her for herself more than, oh, she gave me children or she gives me sex. No, you value her because she is valuable more than what she does. And when you value her, the more that you're going to be grateful for all that she does. And she does a lot for you, by the way. We value God for who He is more than what He does. So we love the giver more than the gifts. And we'll value the gifts the more that we see the stunning beauty and the infinite perfections of the giver of those gifts. And so God reveals who He is so that we will respond with awe of who He is is and then what he has done so god has designed worship to be to do one thing which is to put his infinite glory on display and so worship is god's ultimate purpose let's just be clear all right worship is god's ultimate goal in all that he does so we exist to worship as Jesus said in Matthew 15, 89, He says, your heart's not close to me, it's not worship. It's pretending, it's posing, it's just churchianity. It's all of the externals with, without a heart that beats for Jesus is not worship. But fundamentally who we are as created beings is we are worshipers. We worship. We can't stop ourselves from worshiping. Like understand this. There is never a moment when you are not worshiping. We're always worshiping. Kind of like recently, I looked in my yard, I came out, and it was like a swamp. 
It was like covered in water. It was like, what's going on? It was like water running all the way down the street. It looked like for a mile, like the stream, because there was a leak in the in the uh, sprinkler system. And so the water just kept spewing out until we called plumber and got it fixed. But much like like a sprinkler system or a hose that's turned on and just water is just coming out and it doesn't stop, that's us. Worship is always just coming out. And the, the difference is there's no shut-off valve for our worship. You can't turn it off. You can't. It's always running, always spilling over, always flowing. We are worshipers. It's what we do. It's what God created us to be. Reflectors of His glory. Image bearers. That's what it is. The essence of that is worship. It's relational before our God. So we're always worshiping without exception. So here's what I mean by that. We're always seeing things that we see as beautiful. We see things that are desirable and our heart wants it and we pursue it and we give our hearts to it and then we define our lives around it. And so guys are great at doing this with their jobs. They love, they find their identity and what they do with their hands, with how they provide for their family. And so we, we love it, and we can't even make it an idol. It can be sports. Like people here, man, they worship the cowboys. That's a terrible God to worship. <laughs> like talk about a disappointing God, man. It just doesn't, it doesn't fulfill. But I'm just saying, people still go to Arlington, to Cowboy Stadium, and to that big temple, and, and they worship on Sundays. Let's just be clear. That's what that is. They're finding value in it. They're finding awe. They walk in and they're in awe of the big old Godzilla Jumbotron. They're in awe. That's worship. Like, that's what it is. And so we all do this. We find things that we love and that we find value in that's created. And man, that just offends. That just ticks him off. He's like, hey, I made that. Why are you worshiping that? Worship me. I'm the creator. But we do it all the time. And so leads to the next point on true worship. Not idol worship, but true worship. And you notice you can see there it's spirit and truth. And so we're always worshiping, but the true worship of God has to be in spirit and truth. Remember John chapter 4. Jesus was sitting on a well in Samaria. <laughs> And a woman from Samaria comes up and has this conversation with Jesus. It's a very powerful conversation that's about worship at its essence. And I don't have time to go through the whole chapter, but it's a powerful story. I want to focus in on Jesus' response to her about what worship is. Verse 23, again, John 4, 23. The hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So he says the true worship of God is through spirit and truth. This is very important. Apart from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, we cannot worship Him. 
We are dead, like we saw last week in Ezekiel 36. We are part of the valley of dry bones in chapter 37. We are, we are spiritually dead and have to be resurrected by the Spirit of God and indwelt by Him to be able to worship, to be made new. Like we talked about our mission statement. So that we'll be made new in Jesus, be resurrected spiritually. And so someone who does not know Jesus is dead and cannot worship Him. It's not possible. Only through the Spirit of God is this possible. But it's not just the Spirit. It's the Spirit and truth. And Jesus says, and still in John, if you will fast forward to John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So He says that He is the truth. And so who is the truth? Jesus. And you also have this in Hebrews 1, that He is the final and complete revelation of the Father. And so, who is the truth that leads us into the presence of God? Jesus. He's always the answer, by the way. Jesus is always the answer. Sunday school answers, right? I mean, the verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to Father but through me. He leads us to the presence of God. But it's accomplished through Jesus, the, the final and complete revelation, the gospel of His work on the cross, accomplished through the Spirit. So you need the Spirit of God and you need the truth. If you don't have both, then you are not saved and you cannot worship God. You are stuck in idol worship. You're still going to worship but you won't worship in truth or in spirit, so you're worshiping idols. That, as I talked earlier, will not satisfy their counterfeits. This is key. No truth, no worship. No spirit, no worship. Both work together. And this, what God does is He changes us to the point where we have this enjoyment of God and the overflow of spirit and truth, the overflow of this enjoyment in Him is praise. That's what happens. That's the overflow. We praise what we love. Hear me. We all do this. We praise what we love. And we can't help it. We can't stop ourselves. There's guys that love hunting. And what, what's coming up here pretty soon? Anyone here know? Deer season is about to start. You talk to a guy who loves hunting deer, guess what? He's going to talk about it. Amen? If if you have a girl who's engaged, about to get married, and she's in the throes of wedding planning, guess what she's going to talk about? It's on her mind. She cares about it. She can't help herself. This is going to happen. A guy who loves his business. There's some guys that I'll, I'll go out with. No in this room for the, for the record. But I know it's like a scripted conversation. I know exactly what's going to happen. And you know what? It never fails. And the whole conversation is business. Why? He loves it. That's what's on his mind. That's, and so I'm like trying to turn the conversation on. So what about you and Jesus, right? Like there's, there's other things 
besides just your work. But this is who we are. We praise what we love. And so, again, a sidebar. If you never praise your spouse, it just begs the question, do you enjoy your spouse? Do you really treasure and value your spouse? Because it should be the natural overflow of enjoyment is praise. So in the ultimate sense, it's no different. No praise, no worship. The lack of worship is indicated by a lack of praise. So if there's no worship, that means there's no enjoyment. It's not there. It's just not in there. You're trying to fake it, and you're trying to make yourself, and it's duty, and it's work, and you're tired, and you know it. You're exhausted. But the root of this is if there's no enjoyment, if there's no love and passion for Jesus that's real, there's not going to be overflow of a life of worship and of praise. It always comes back to the heart. And so what do you do if you find yourself today in that place where you're like, man, I'm, I'm not feeling it. I'm having a hard season right now. We'll talk about that more tonight. But know that your God loves you and He delights in you. What you need is a fresh revelation, a fresh word from God. And be in awe of Him afresh. It always goes back to good spirit and truth. Is walking in the spirit with the truth of the word. This is what grips our hearts. As God reveals who He is, then our hearts respond with worship. So if you're not responding with worship that's an overflow of praise, then very likely then you're not in awe of Jesus. You're in awe of something, but not Jesus. And you need to go back to your first love. Let's talk about all of life as worship. Because sometimes we can have compartments. We think about worship as Sunday morning only. But it's not. All of life is meant to be an overflow of our enjoyment and praising God. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 13. I want to read a verse that really encapsulates this essence of all of life as worship. Hebrews 13, read verses 15 and 16. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what you're seeing here is he's summarizing. He says sacrifice twice. Beginning and end of these two verses, he says sacrifice. And the sacrifice is an echo from Old Testament sacrifices that were at the center of, of ancient Hebrew worship. And they were displaying their value of God by giving a bull or a goat or a dove or some other animal that was precious to them, and they were giving it to express their value for God, and so that's worship. So today, we value the redemption that we have, that Jesus sacrificed His sacrifice for us on the cross, and so we then value Him and what He's done, and then we respond with worship, with all of our lives. And these verses describe two things that is at the heart of worship. He says, sacrifice is what? He says, 
words. He says, so on your lips, right? Verse 15 and verse 16, doing good. So he says, your words and your actions. Basically, that's everything. That's all of life. All that you say, all that you do. And Jesus made it clear, your heart, so down to your desires. So your your desires, your words, and your actions, that summarizes your whole life. He's saying all of life, which you also see in the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, all that you do, do it all to the glory of God. So you see it here as well. That everything that we do, our words and actions, are meant to reflect our value for God. And so that fills us with joy. I talked about it earlier, but I want to spend a few minutes talking about a little bit more, just for a minute, about idolatry. And this, sometimes when we find ourselves not feeling it, not, it's not overflowing, it's not, it's not spilling over into a life, as we see here, of words and actions and desires that are, that are worship. We have to understand that our fundamental problem deep inside is idolatry. And so all of our sin problems are really worship problems. And so addictions are idolatry. Marriage problems at the root is idolatry. It's a distortion of, of worship. So if we get our worship of God right, then I promise you, your marriage will be so much better. Husbands are more caring and listen to their wives and value them. And wives respect and are in tune with their husbands when they are worshiping. So when the vertical relationship is, is healthy, the horizontal ones flourish. And so when, when the horizontal ones with our friends and neighbors and coworkers and spouses and children, when all of those are suffering, you have to look at, well, what does the vertical one with us and God look like? Something is wrong. It's a distortion of Worship. Now, someday I'll do a whole series on this, but just in brief, we express our worship in three primary ways. Keep it simple. is love, trust, and obey. It's really not that complicated. We express our worship by loving Jesus, and by trusting Jesus, and then by obeying Jesus. And, and there's a sequence to this, by the way. And so a, a treasuring, so a loving Jesus and then a trusting Jesus will lead you to be obedient to Him. So if you don't treasure or trust Him, you're not going to obey Him. So that's where it starts. And you know what idols are? They're just counterfeits. That's all they are. Where they promise you that if you will trust in this idol, if you will just love this idol, then it'll give you happiness. It'll give you joy. But if you don't, then you won't get joy. And so then we give us and we obey. And so I've met so many guys, again, to not pick on guys, but whatever, um, that they are so, don't even realize it, worshiping their idol of career and of success. And they're so obedient to their master of this idol of, of work that they're, they're loving it and they're putting their hope and their trust in it and, and their income and they obey and those sacrifice for that idol. Sacrifice what? Their health? They don't even get lunch. They don't even get enough rest. They sacrifice their kids. They sacrifice their wives. They sacrifice everything. Why? Because their master is calling for obedience. The master of jobs says, sacrifice for me. 
bow down to me. And then the worshiper says, yes, master, whatever you ask, I will do it. I will worship you, idol, God of Job. We all do this. And this can be love, this can be relationships, this can be sex, this can be anything, you name it. We all do this. It can be food. Crazy, but it's true. It gives us hope and comfort. And so our hearts are like idol factories stamping out idols because of our sin, because we're corrupted. But they're counterfeits. They look like the real thing. Just like if you buy a cubic zirconia, you know what that is, right? A CZ, diamond. But is that really a diamond? It looks like one. Like the problem here in the U.S. is when you buy a CZ, you're buying it at like Walmart, right? Or like Target. And so it, it doesn't look that great. But in the UAE, it was crazy. Because you go into a jewelry shop that has like legit, nice, like legit gold jewelry. And it's not cheap. But the diamond is a CZ. And it was like, whoa, like... They put cubic zirconia on like nice jewelry from a real jewelry store, which makes it that much more deceiving because it looks like real. It looks like the real thing. But the difference is the fundamental properties of CZ is not the same as diamond. It looks the same. And if you would put it on like nice, a nice ring, it would look like a real ring. Like it looks like real jewelry. But that CZ is going to break much more easily if you hit it against something. Why? It's not the same thing. It's not the real thing. It's a counterfeit. It looks like it. But it can't deliver. That's idols. It looks like the real thing. God. But it can't deliver. It disappoints. It leaves us enslaved and hungry and thirsty and wanting more. And destroys us in the end. It takes us away from the ultimate joy of living in God's presence. We won't look at it now, but in your home groups this week, we'll be looking at Psalm 115, verses 1 through 9, that describe idolatry and worship of the one true God. But it begins saying, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. What is that? It's worship. And then he says, For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then verse 9, he says, Trust in the Lord. So he's expressing his worship, his, his affections and his trust and his obedience to God. Versus idols, he says, No, I will not. I will give my, my love, my trust, my obedience to the one true God. And so this is the essence of idolaters. We love, trust, or obey something instead of Jesus. And so worship is the fuel for and the end of the mission. So when I say fuel for, what I mean is when you're, when you're worshiping God, it brings joy. That's our purpose. And so, and so it gives us fuel and encouragement to go and keep following Him. And so it gives us fuel to be on mission and reach those that are far from God. Because people that don't know Jesus don't worship Him. They worship, but they don't worship Jesus. They're enslaved. And so worshiping God is fuel to be on mission, but it's also the end. It's the goal of the mission. Psalm 22, verse 7. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's the goal. 
which is why our vision is to bring God's renewal to Bell County and the world. And we do this together. We treasure Jesus together. So we worship Him every day on our own, just in, in a personal way. Um, this morning, Paz, and they talked about private and then public worship. Um, I, I, I respect Him, but I don't like the word private because it gives the connotations, oh, it's my thing, it's private. It's not true. Now, we do have personal. So following Jesus is personal, but it's not private. It's public. Following Jesus is never just a you on your own thing. It's not yours. It belongs to all the people of God together. So we follow Him personally, yes, every day, individually. You can say in privacy of your own home, I get that. But I want to convey that it's not just you. It's personal. You worship Him, but it's also public. So let's talk with the time that's remaining on worship as a faith family. So public worship as Renewal Church. It has always been God's plan to have a worshiping community. He made Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the Israelites had the tabernacle, and then later you have Jesus, who is the, the Word, who is made flesh, and He is the temple. Remember, he says that he would die and then be resurrected in three days. They had a temple rebuilt. So Jesus is the temple that brings us into the presence of God. So that's who he is. You have the church that has his presence and then one day in heaven. So God has been working out a plan to have a people. And so Sunday morning should never just be a, oh, it's just one more Sunday. It's just one more week to come and do the church thing and, and check the box before we rush off to go get lunch somewhere. That is not the goal. We should be anticipating because what's happening Sunday morning is powerful. Ephesians 2, verses 18 through 22. Ephesians 2, 18. For through Him we have access in one Spirit to the Father. So through Jesus we can access God, of course, through the Spirit. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. So you're not far from God. You've been brought near into His presence, but you're part of the family of God. You have a faith family together. Verse 20, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. That's the word. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's us. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God dwells here in our hearts individually, but also as a faith family. And as we read earlier in Acts 2, that they met in the temple together and then in homes. And so what we have is God's promised presence. So I want to talk for a minute about God's presence individually and as a church because we use language like, oh, I was brought into God's presence this morning on Sunday or or the worship was brought me into God's presence. Or man, that worship leader, man, he took us right into God's presence. Ever heard that language? Right. 
and, and we use it, and it's not evil. I'm not trying to just be disparaging, but I want to be very clear on what that means and what that doesn't mean. Okay, so God's promised presence. We saw here that He gives us His Spirit. And so the Spirit is in us, and so He will never leave. And so you always have His presence. So His promised presence, something that you cannot lose. So your union with Christ, to use that language as well from the Bible, is one that you cannot lose. You can't lose that. But we also have God's experienced presence. So God's promised presence, and then sensing His presence, experienced presence, can be a little bit different. So you have verses like, like Acts 7.51 talks about resisting the Spirit. Or Ephesians 4.30 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. And 1 Thessalonians 5.19 describes quenching the Spirit. And so we are able to do it, to resist, to quench the Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit gives us greater evidence. So hear this, okay? We always have His presence. But He, the Spirit, gives us greater experience, greater evidence of His presence according to our response to Him. Does that make sense? So we always have His presence, but we sense it, we experience it, and that will vary based upon your response and your yielding, submitting, depending upon the Spirit. And so, for example, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit. Now, you already have the Spirit. He's already indwelling you. But this filling is what he's talking about on experiencing it. So this is communion with Jesus. That can be broken. Where His presence is clouded. And we don't sense His love. And we don't, we don't sense, like we don't experience His, His mercy or His peace. Now, you still have that. They're objective realities, but our experience of it will vary depending upon how much we submit to Him. So have you ever had the experience when either praying or reading the Word or singing, where you have this like sudden feeling of, of, of peace that just comes upon you? Ever experienced that? Anyone? A few of you? A few heads nodding? Or this like wave of joy that just like comes on you. They're like, whoa, whoa, this is awesome. Ever experienced that? Well, that the Spirit does that. He gives us this greater experience, this filling of the Spirit. It's kind of hard to explain, like, but you have to just experience it. But that's different from His promised presence. And, and there's something about singing that's unique. Because, again, Ephesians 5.18 says to be filled with and so experience more of His presence. And the same verse, you know what He says to do? Anyone know? He says, sing hymns and spiritual songs. So He is connecting in the same verse, again, Ephesians 5.18, on experiencing more of His presence being revealed with singing. So there's something about how we express our affections to God that's unique to when we're singing to Him. And there's something unique also here in Ephesians 2. We see that it's a, so that the gathered people of God is the, the dwelling place of God. And so there is something unique in which the Spirit reveals and gives us greater evidence of His indwelling when we're gathered together. It's like you can be at home singing, 
an awesome praise song, and then you sing that same song with God's people, it's different, isn't it? Why? Because we have been created to follow Him in community. We're a worshiping community. But just so that we're clear, music does not bring us into God's presence. So Katie, leading us up here, she doesn't take us into God's presence. Jesus does that. He is the temple. Jesus is the one that brings us into the presence of God through His Spirit. So the means that we have access to God is through Jesus, through His Spirit. But what music does in a powerful way is it reveals the truth of Jesus. He's revealing who He is. And then what is that causing us to do in response? Worship. The truth is revealed and our hearts are gripped and we respond through the Spirit. And so we experience, we sense more of His presence that we have all the time, but we're made more aware of it depending upon how much we yield to Him. So worshiping does not bring us into God's presence. Hear me. Singing, worshiping does not bring you into His presence. We worship because we are in His presence. We worship because we have His Spirit. And then the response is that we, we experience that. So worship gatherings at Renewal Church will be a combination of revelation and then response. Revelation and then we respond. God's revealed, and then we respond. And the respond is worship. So every gathering will have reading the Word, praying the Word, singing the Word, hearing the Word, and seeing the Word. And so as far as singing the Word, it's an expression of our affection. And so sometimes we're going to sing loud and fast, and it's going to be vibrant and expressive. And sometimes it'll be quieter. Maybe sometimes when we're even going to have complete silence for a few moments. Maybe some music lightly playing, but a quiet time to reflect. Because both are responses. Loud and hand-raising and yay! And also times of quiet to meditate are equally appropriate and necessary. Both are responses to the Word. So we're going to sing the Word. We're also going to hear the Word preached. That's going to be fundamental to every worship gathering. It's hearing the Word proclaimed. And we're going to see the Word with communion and baptism, the ordinances. And so we're, we're going to have that. Now we're going to have it once a month. Now some of you are used to Baptist church. We have it three or four times a year. It's going to feel weird to you. Like we're doing it again? Yes, we are. Um, we'll do it once a month. And we'll do a little bit differently. We're, we're not going to use little crackers. We're, we're going to have different bread um, that is going to be made and it's going to be a little bit more substantive. And we're not going to pass a plate across. Instead, we're going to have you walk up to like a station where you have bread handed to you. And so a leader in this church, it, like you won't take it. You just have your, your palms open and then you will receive the bread because it's symbolic. It's saying we are receiving the body. We're receiving Christ. Receiving His mercy. You don't grab hold of it. You respond to Him taking hold of you. And so we receive His mercy. And so in this symbolic way, you're receiving 
the bread and you receiving the cup. And so it'll be a solemn time once a month as part of the worship gathering, but it's going to be a way of expressing. So seeing the word and so the bread and the cup are visuals of the gospel, visuals of the word. And so we're experiencing it. And God meets us in a powerful and unique way, even through the elements. And so again, He's present in us already, but He gives us greater awareness and experience of it as we follow His His designed way of reading and praying and singing and hearing and seeing the Word. And you know what happens when we read and pray and sing and hear and see the Word? We then respond to the Word with worship. And that's what we're created to do. God speaks and then we respond. And so my prayer is that we will be a worshiping church, a worshiping community where it's vibrant and expressive and not held back or reserved, but just overflowing with enjoyment in our stunning God. I want to close with this, and then can come up and lead us in the closing song. Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9. John has received this vision about where we're going at the end in Revelation and he's so in awe of this angel. And, and here's, here's what it says, um, verse 8. I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, again, this angel, he says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. That's the focus of our whole lives. Our purpose, our joy, our meaning, our hope is worship. We worship Him who alone is worthy. And as we do, out of the overflow reach those that are far from God.